welcome to Recipe for Success. My name is Nancy Giacalone, and um, I'm happy to report that I am back among the living, finally um, actually operating as a human being and not one that feels like uh, I'm buried under a, a, a ton of sickness. So good news on that front. I am so excited to um, introduce my guest today, Andrea Wilson-Woods. Um, I'm a like I'm a little bit of a fangirl because <laughs> I have been watching her on LinkedIn and she's kind of amazing. I mean, actress, author, activist, entrepreneur, <laughs> the list goes on. So pretty impressive person. So um, with that, Andrea, I'm going to let you continue the introduction and tell everybody a little bit about yourself and kind of your life career path. Sure. Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. I did not know that you were a fangirl. <laughs> so, <laughs> thank you so much. Sometimes we just don't know what we post, if it makes an impact or not. So um, I would say at the core of everything I do, I just really love to tell stories. So I founded the nonprofit Blue Fairy, the Adrian Wilson Liver Cancer Association. That's my patient advocacy I'm the CEO and co-founder of Cancer University and host of the Cancer Youth Thrivers podcast. And I'm also author of Better Off Bald, Life in 147 Days, uh, a best-selling and award-winning medical memoir. And for over 10 years, I actually worked in the education field as a teacher, as a professor for public schools, private schools, and universities. And, um, and a shout out to my, my Trojans. I'm a two-time Trojan. Uh, Trojan, I have a master's degree in writing and a bachelor's in humanities. So that's kind of the the short bio. And then, um, yeah, we can dive deeper. Awesome. Well, that's very exciting. So um, anybody that is joining us for the very first time, Recipe for Success really focuses on well, this season in particular on women doing fantastic things in either in their personal or business life, and in many cases, such as you, both. Um, so I want to kind of go back to where things really started for you. Um, and this is something that's been shared publicly, so I'm not I'm not telling any secrets. <laughs> no, you're not. <laughs> um, but um, you lost your younger sister, Adrian, at the age of 15 to liver cancer. Yeah. Um, I'd like to know a little bit about that journey because it involves a lot, not just a sister passing away. So tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. So when I was 22 years old, I was living in Los Angeles. I had graduated from USC the year before, and I was just trying to figure out my life. And my eight-year-old sister, Adrian, came to visit me for what was supposed to be a two-week Christmas vacation. And it turned into a permanent stay when our mother called me up the day after Christmas and said she didn't want to be a mother anymore. And I did not put it together until many, many, many years later, but that was also three days before my mother's 50th birthday. So she had my sister much later in life. My sister's father died before she was born. And, um, and our mother was also an addict. So there were, there were a lot of issues going on at, at the time. And my mother had become really unstable. And so I ended up taking custody of my sister. I sued our mother in court and won. And so I raised Adrian all through my 20s. I, I was a parent. And one month after her 15th birthday, just as she was finishing her freshman year of high school, she was diagnosed with stage four liver cancer. And it was truly the day before she was fine. And then that day she had pain. And it was actually an ER doctor that told us that she had tumors in her liver and lungs. 
And to put the whole thing in perspective, she died a few months after my 29th birthday. And that changed the whole course of my life. Uh, how could it not? I mean, right. <laughs> seriously, how All could of it, it not? <laughs> so um, there's so much to unpack here and we're going to go deeper into your story. But before we do that, I kind of want to touch on the situation with your mom just a little bit, because as I think if we dial it back to that point in time, I don't think that we have the resources or the common language around mental health issues um, at, for society, for people to be able to identify that she was obviously going, in addition to her addiction, she was obviously going through some pretty traumatic things of her own and didn't have the resources, the knowledge or anything to be able to figure out what to do or how to communicate that, that she had a need. Yeah, I found out also that she had tried to give my sister away to other people, including oh. my sister's father's family, who never really knew her that well. And and I think so. I think I was her last choice. And not because I wouldn't do a good job, but because my mother knew and I told her right then that if I take her, I'm not giving her back because I yeah. just saw how my mother's life had been unraveling and how much of an impact it had on my sister. It was horrible. Well, um, yeah, I'm, I'm, that's just such a, such a sad situation, but such a blessing to your sister that you were willing to step up. And in retrospect, it ended up being a blessing in your life as well, um, in the ways that it impacted. So let's talk about the blue fairy, which I love the name by the way, <laughs> um, which is the Adrian Wilson liver cancer association, yeah. which clearly has a connection to your sister, not only in her name, but in her disease. So I'd like you to share more about like what prompted you to start that and, and, you know, the initiative behind it. Yeah. So Blue Fairy's mission is to prevent, treat, and cure primary liver cancer, specifically hepatocellular carcinoma, which is HCC for short, um, through research, education, advocacy. And the year after Adrian died, I was 30 years old. And I was drowning in my grief. I was suicidal. And I, I mean, I had the whole suicide. I had everything sure. planned, everything, you know, ready to go kind of thing. And I just knew I had to find a way to channel my grief. And initially, I just wanted to volunteer. So I called the largest liver disease nonprofit at the time and offered to volunteer for them. But I wanted to focus on liver cancer. And sure. They wanted nothing to do with it, and I thought they misunderstood, so I just kept pushing, and I, oh, no, no, you don't have to pay me. You know, I'll volunteer. You know, this is my background, and um, I'll create something for you, and and they wanted absolute, absolutely nothing to do with it, so I did a lot more research. I discovered there wasn't a single organization in the U.S. at the time dedicated to primary liver cancer, and I felt like I had to do something about it because I didn't want other people to go through what Adrian and I went through. I'm so surprised by that, that there well, wasn't an, that, that liver cancer had been such an overlooked area of focus because I mean, I hear about it more frequently than I would like to. So it's not such a rare disease. Back then it really was, especially okay. in the U S and when Adrian was diagnosed, I think there were about 14,000 new cases that year. And she was not your typical patient by any means, which we'll probably dive into. And, um, but I knew given 
you know, what causes the disease that I knew it was just going to continue to increase in the U.S. And, and, and it has. And so now there are over 32,000 cases in the U.S. So it's still considered a rare disease inside the U.S. But okay. worldwide, it is the third most common cancer, actually third most common cause of cancer deaths, fourth or fifth most common cancer. And there are over 800,000 people diagnosed with liver cancer and about 700,000 die. So it's um, much more common. It's actually also one of the most preventable cancers, but if you don't catch it early, it will kill you. So what are the common causes or what are the primary contributing factors? They fall into three buckets. So one bucket um, is viruses. So hepatitis B, chronic hepatitis B and hepatitis C were for a long time the most common causes of liver cancer. Specifically in the U.S., it was baby boomers who had contracted hepatitis C and didn't know it. Sure. And, and in fact, with Adrian, as soon as they saw what they did on her liver during her biopsy, they were stunned because she was so far from that, the typical patient, especially at the time. Um, the typical patient 20 years ago was a non-North American male over the age of 50. And here was a 15-year-old Caucasian female who had never even been outside the U.S., so they immediately tested her for hepatitis, and we found out that she had chronic hepatitis B and hepatitis C, which they concluded that she got from our mother during childbirth. I was going to guess that. Yeah. And so viruses is one bucket. Um, the second bucket uh, is environment. And so there are some environmental toxins um, that can be correlated to liver cancer. There's an aflatoxin, which is a fungus that is seen on nuts in Asia. It's not here. So that's that's much more rare. There are a couple of very rare um, genetic diseases. And then the other big category or bucket is lifestyle. You know, obesity is linked to liver cancer. I think most people know, and it was the only thing I knew about liver cancer at the time is drinking, you know, drinking sure. too much is really, is really, you know, connected to liver cancer. What I find most interesting, though, is when I started Blue Fairy, hepatitis C was the most common cause of primary liver cancer in the U.S. Now it has started to shift with all the curative drugs on the market, with more screening going on, with the awareness that every baby boomer needs a one-time hepatitis C test. So mm -hmm. hint, hint to all the baby boomers. Um, but now it really is what they call non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. You know, obesity has a very, very strong link to liver cancer as well as 12 other types of cancer. Yes. And, um, and that's a big challenge. It, it's a huge challenge. Um, it, yeah. Well, I mean, all you have to do is walk through the airport and you can see the, um, you know, the challenge that we have in our country. It's, it's unfortunate and it is very preventable, as you say. Um, yeah. So, And food can be an addiction. And I think a lot of people don't look at food, right, as a possible addiction, but absolutely. Absolutely it is. Um, it's a comforting mechanism. It is a coping mechanism. And um, it is something that people do become addicted to just as they do alcohol, drugs, poor behavior choices. I mean, addictions um, are, it's a very broad category and it's not just drugs and alcohol, which I think we've tended to think of. Right. Okay. So let's talk about Cancer University or Cancer U, which I love that name. Um, okay. So clearly I can see a path with where you're going, but um, let's talk about how you actually 
formed the idea and eventually brought it to fruition. And I will just pop a comment up here. This happens to be my mom, as a matter of fact. Um, she said, I agree with the food addiction. And I do see that with a lot of people. It's just, you know, they just have to have it. So anyway, back to Cancer You. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I co-founded Cancer University. And as, like you said, we call it Cancer You for short. Uh, it's a for-profit social impact health tech uh, startup. And it really came out of a need I saw with my own advocacy organization. So my my background is is teaching and coaching. And I've been coaching patients and caregivers pro bono for over a decade. And it started small, you know, it really did start specifically in liver cancer. And then it sort of grew and it got to the point where I could not scale myself. <laughs> and, but I saw this need that, you know, even though Blue Fairy, for example, offers outstanding patient education materials, they are free. We ship worldwide. You can download the PDFs. Um, they're in layman's terms. They're translated into multiple languages. What I was finding was that sort of next step was, okay, here's all the information. Now, what do you do with it? Right. And so patients and caregivers were calling me and texting me and my all-time favorite, and please don't do this, sending me their medical records through Facebook Messenger oh, no. <laughs> and asking for help. So so once they kind of got the lay of the land of their particular disease, then they were like, okay, well, well, now what do I do? And so I felt like it was this missing component. It was bothering me for a very, very long time. I, I meditated on it. I prayed on it. And then I kind of realized that you know, even for me, I grew up around doctors and hospitals because our mother was a nurse and I was very comfortable in that environment. But when my sister was diagnosed, it happened so fast. And I was asked to make major decisions about her treatment less than 48 hours after hearing she has tumors in her liver and lungs. And my head was spinning. And I realized it really was like going back to school. So I had this crazy idea for Cancer University. And um, my friend had given me this information about this international entrepreneurial competition called the Estella's C3 Prize. And the C3 is changing cancer care. And I think it was only the second year of the competition. And I thought, this idea is crazy, and, but I'll enter the competition and see. And I had nothing but the idea. And then you had to do a web page. So I created a web page and a video and entered the competition. I kind of forgot about it. And that year, out of over 160 entries from 21 countries, I got in the top 10. And I interviewed with the Estella's executives, and I was in the semifinals. And I knew I wasn't going to make it to the finals because I truly had just this idea, concept right. at that point. I had nothing else to show for it. But, you know, just getting that far in that competition gave me the momentum to go, okay, I'm going to keep vetting this idea. And I did for another six months. I, I vetted the idea with patients and caregivers, survivors, providers, um, every person I know in the pharmaceutical industry, and every person said yes. And so I went out and got a co-founder because I um, started Blue Fairy as a one-person founder, and I didn't want to do that with something like this. And, and that was sort of the, the birth of Cancer University. That's really cool. Um, I made the top 10 of a pie competition once, but that's as far as I ever got. What kind of pie? It was an espresso pumpkin pie. So um, Ooh, anyway. Pumpkin's my uh, favorite. Oh, anyway, that's so as far good. as I got. But um, <laughs> anyway, that's <in> more serious. <laughs> just, just in case anyone wanted to know. Um, so let's talk about 
who and how Cancer University actually helps. Yeah, so it's an online platform. It's for both patients and caregivers to educate, empower, and engage them to become advocates for their care to improve outcomes, lower stress, and reduce cost. So we educate through courses, we engage through community, and we empower through coaching. And we really believe all three of those pieces are essential. So when you join Cancer U, um, you start with orientation, just like you would at any college. And so our flagship course, The Proactive Patient, serves as this very broad overview to the world of cancer. But even in the orientation, we talk about money. You know, we talk about clinical trials. We try to touch on just sort of everything, what to expect in your cancer journey. After completing that course, um, our members go on to take their major courses, which are based on their or their loved one's type of cancer. So for me with my sister, it would be liver cancer. We have core courses that are related to all issues, um, regardless of cancer type, like nutrition and exercise. And we have our coaching component. We have our community. And then we also have our electives, which is sort of our secret sauce. So we create electives with our members. We create electives with providers. So we have um, our Share Your Story, which also becomes a podcast episode. We have a Meet the Expert series. We have an Ask the Author series where we interview an author who's written about cancer, whether it's a memoir or a how-to or a research book. And, and so that's sort of the, the, the broad overview of the world of Cancer U. That's so cool. I just think that's that's really amazing. Um, so I obviously work in the employee benefits field. And so we, you know, are always trying to design plans and help people be aware of benefits and everything. So we live in this world. But, <laughs> but despite that fact, the second that one of us is impacted, everything that we know flies right out of our brains yeah. because you're so focused on the now and getting the treatment and et cetera. So to have such a structured program available for support, I think is really, really incredible. I just, I love the whole university aspect and how you structured it. It really makes it feel, I don't know, it makes it feel not as um, dark um, because when you hit that cancer diagnosis, I think it can be a very dark time for both patients and, and caregivers. And so this feels, um, like it's proactive and you're really doing something. So I do love that. So we're using the term proactive. Um, again, you brought this up, but your foundational course is called the proactive patient. Right. And I really love that term or that intro course, because again, I think that as soon as we hear that word cancer, we tend to feel like we're stripped of all of our power. Yeah. We're Absolutely. powerless against this thing that has taken over our lives, our bodies, our loved ones. Um, so how do you teach people to advocate for themselves during this journey? Because I think that's one of the biggest things they can do. Well, you know, it's, it's not easy. I'm not going to pretend it's easy. Um, we have discovered that survivors are often the best coaches if they can sort of take their personal story out of it a little bit, but they are very good coaches because they've been there. Um, they can they can tell you sort of the ins and outs. But what it really comes down to is 
helping that person understand um, as much as they want to know about the disease. Not every patient wants to know everything. Sometimes they defer to a family member or caregiver, um, but also identifying what their core values are. Um, and, you know, do they understand their treatment options? You know, with liver cancer specifically, most of the treatment options are palliative, yet most people assume if their doctor gives them a treatment that the goal is cure. Sure. When, when that's not the case. Um, but but identifying core values is, is very important. I can think of one patient. Um, he had been on a drug for a year. And on the plus side, he was still alive. <laughs> that's really kind of how he put it. But the drug had had such negative side effects that he didn't have a life anymore. And he had been very athletic. He had, you know, he was a swimmer. He swam in the ocean every day and he had no energy anymore to really do much of anything. And, and that was something that, you know, was part of the coaching. You know, you have to sort of weigh these options because the drug he was on was not curative at all. And so how much of your life, you know, are you willing to, to give up? You know, is it, is it worth it? And I think a lot of these frank discussions are, starting to happen, but for the most part, they don't happen. And they need to happen at the very beginning. The very beginning, when you hear that C word, you need to start having those frank discussions ab about all of it. And most doctors, I find, don't even know how to have the death conversation or the the one day you could potentially die conversation. And we're all dying. Right. All dying. Yeah, we're all going to die. We all have an expiration date. We do. <laughs> we just don't know what it is. That's right. Most that's, of us don't. That's right. Um, I think also it's so important to feel that it's okay to ask questions. Yes. Because I, I think as a society, we have become, we walk into a doctor's office and we just nod. And we don't know that, you know, we're, it's the treatment is for us. We're there for us. And it's okay to ask questions. It doesn't mean that you're just being disrespectful. I mean, of course, ask them in a respectful way. You're not being disrespectful. You just need to understand. And, and I think people need to feel empowered to ask questions. Well, why, why are you recommending that? Are there any alternatives? Um, how is this going to impact the rest of my life? It, it, those are just simple questions, but most people don't feel it's okay to ask them. Yeah. Yeah. And you have to, you have to give them give them that, that courage and that in many ways permission. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, again, back to the orientation in one of the lessons and one of the modules, it's a whole lesson on questions to ask your doctor. And, and our, all of our courses have video, audio and downloadable worksheets. So when it comes to those questions, they are downloadable worksheets. I love that. Yeah. And, you know, you, you know, you have every right to ask these questions. And often if you know, at the very beginning, what questions to ask, you might make very different decisions about treatment. I know that I would have. Yeah. Um, absolutely. Well, the thing I like about what you're doing is with the downloadable worksheets, if a patient walks in or a caregiver walks in with a worksheet, they could say, well, Andrea told me to ask yeah. these questions. You yes. know? But and sometimes, answer you. And yes. sometimes that just makes it easier for them. Or, you know, I was I was given this list of questions to ask. It doesn't feel like, you know, they're being confrontational. So, I mean, that's a fantastic tool. It seems simple, but it's a big deal. It's yeah. a really big deal. Yeah, so. it is a big deal. And I've been very happy with how 
how positive providers have been about Cancer U because they do love this idea that they can create content with Cancer U. We take care of all the tech and the back end, but they can create specific courses and direct their patients to Cancer U instead of their patients going on Dr. Google and maybe going yes. down a rabbit hole that has nothing to do with anything. Right. And, and so they really love this idea. You know, we had a neurosurgeon who specializes in glioblastoma who came to us and he did our Meet the Expert program. And, and, you know, and it was just so fascinating. But now he can tell all of his patients, you know, if you want to know X, Y, or Z, you can go here. Yeah, I love that. Um, I also think that, you know, most providers want to do the right thing. They're just so busy and they get yes. caught, kind of they get kind of caught up in a loop of, you know, doing the same thing. But if you stop them to ask them a question, it changes their mindset and re-engages with them with you as a person as well, instead of just as a patient. And I think that can make a really big difference. I agree. Okay. So among her other talents, she's <laughs> a best-selling author. Uh, Better Off Bald was a medical memoir about your sister. So um, I read the whole, you know, Cliff Notes version. Um, <laughs> I, but I would love to hear more about the book and how what she taught you during that time period between the time she was diagnosed and the time she passed. Yeah, so it, it tells the story of, of raising Adrian from the time she was eight until she died at the age of 15. But Adrian's cancer journey, the subtitle of the book, Alive in 147 Days, is because that's how long she lived with that diagnosis. And so I chose to write the book like a journal where chapters are actually days because I kept a medical diary the entire time Adrian was sick, very detailed medical diary, but she was a writer too. And she started an online journal long before she became sick and continued to write in it after she was diagnosed. So by day three, the each chapter opens with her actual words, you know, her oh. journal entries or her emails to friends. And so you go on this journey where you see my point of view as the parent and a sister who is doing everything I possibly can to save her life. But then you also see her point of view as a patient trying to live her life. And I couldn't acknowledge it at the time, but Adrian had a bucket list. You know, she, she knew she was dying. Uh, there's a really pivotal moment in the book, and I don't think it ruins anything for anyone, but there's this pivotal moment after her fourth round of chemo where I thought she was getting better. I was like, oh my gosh, she hasn't been in pain. We were in and out of the hospital quickly, no complications. And she knew she was getting worse. She felt it in her body. And then we got those CAT scan results back and the tumors had just gone crazy. Um, and so she really did everything she could to squeeze as much life in, you know, in those 147 days. And whenever we went to the hospital, all of her, most of her chemo was inpatient. The first thing she would ask is, when am I out of here? You know, I've got things to do. I've yeah. got things planned. You know, we we planned everything around her immune system as much as we possibly could. So, for example, she met Dave Navarro, her favorite Ooh. rock star. Uh, Dave Navarro, Jane's Addiction, for those who don't know. And she met him twice. Wow. That wasn't me. That was her. That was That was all her saying, this is what I want. You know, and and there were so many other things like that. Um, you know, we went to the Tonight Show. We met Jay Leno. 
Um, and both Jay Leno and Dave Navarro, I mean, they really gave Adrian two of the best days of her life. That's amazing. I love that. That is wonderful. And I love that she said what she wanted. Yes. Yeah. Um, because I, again, if you think about a lot of people that are going through cancer or any other terminal diseases, I don't think they often speak up and say, this is what I need. This is what I want because there tend to be, and maybe because she was younger too, it might've made a difference, but a lot of people tend to be so concerned about everyone around them. They forget, this is my time. I need to make the most of it. So that is wonderful. Okay. So what is the one thing that you would encourage people to do right off the bat when they first find themselves or a loved one with a cancer diagnosis? Get a second opinion. You know, I don't care how much you like your doctor. I don't care where they went to medical school. I don't care if you're being seen at one of the top cancer centers in the state, in your state or in the country, you know, cancer can be a killer. You have to get a second opinion. It's not always easy, um, but it's doable. And my sister was initially treated just sort of just the way it happened at one of the top children's hospitals in the country. But Children's Hospital Los Angeles did not have a lot of experience with her particular cancer because it was considered an adult type of liver cancer. And after we got a second opinion at UCLA where they saw our type of cancer every day, And after I argued with my sister's health insurance for six weeks, I was able to transfer her care to UCLA, where just the the expertise was there. Um, The way they put together her care team was so much better, more coordinated. They all talked to each other. But by that point, she had already had four rounds of chemotherapy, and it had decimated her immune system. So even though we got to UCLA and we, we got the outpatient chemo that Adrian wanted, it really was too late. And, and so that's the other thing. You have no idea how much time you have. So getting that second opinion right away is so critical. Because you just don't know what you don't know at that that's point. That's right. That's right. You know, I know an oncologist, an oncologist, and he even said that he didn't understand until he was diagnosed with lymphoma. Mm -hmm. And here's this oncologist. He's been treating this for many, many years. He gets diagnosed with lymphoma. And he said those first 10 days, he he just had no idea. Like he just couldn't even keep up with everything. And he had all the knowledge. Yeah. You know, it's, it's just, it's a really, it's a really devastating moment and scary. It really is. All right. Well, we're going to lighten the mood for a minute. Okay. <laughs> so we are on to the fun part of the show. You now get to um, enjoy my five burning questions. <laughs> which I love, which, by the way. Which always which change. Has, huh? change. I've been listening to they a lot of your- change. They, they do, do change. They do change. So. Depends on who I'm talking to. <laughs> uh, but the one thing that never changes is what is your absolute favorite food in the world and can you cook it? So I'm a terrible cook. I hate to cook. Please, the people in my life, please stop trying to make me uh, be a good cook or even try to cook. Um, But when I heard this question come up repeatedly on your episodes, um, my first thought was, I used to have this friend who made me gluten-free pizza, and he learned how to make it just for me. And the crust was amazing, and the sauce was so yummy. I mean, everything about the pizza was great, and it actually all, like, stayed together. It didn't fall apart. And I could digest it. You know, my stomach didn't hurt. 
Unfortunately, our friendship ended before I could get the recipe. <laughs> so if I had that recipe, I, I would probably try to make it because I've never had any gluten-free pizza that comes close to his. Very good. So do you have a Whole Foods near you? We do. Yes. One. They, have, they, <laughs> One. They, they actually sell a gluten. You can go in there and buy their gluten-free crust from their little pizza section. Okay. I don't know if you have the pizza thing in there, but and the ones near us have a like a, a pizza place where they make their pizzas there. But um, they actually sell, I used to buy it all the time. Their gluten-free crust is the best I've had out of any place. Okay. So, Good to know. My, <laughs> See, Nancy, my, my, Nancy's trying to get me to cook. <laughs> no, 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 no. You can make somebody else cook, but just go buy the gluten-free crust. Okay. It's delicious. <laughs> so, okay. And this one tends to stay in my in my question repertoire a little bit too, I'm going to admit, but I, I like it because I always find out a lot about people. So what's the one character trait that you most admire in other people and why? Patience. I am probably one of the least patient people I know, except with children. And I think that's why I'm, I'm really good with young children. I'm very patient with young children, but with adults, I, I have no patience and I, I keep it in most of the time. I keep it under, you know, clamped down under control, but, um, Thankfully, you know, we can't read each other's thoughts uh, or most of us can't read each other's thoughts. And <laughs> because sometimes it's a good thing. I, I assure you <laughs> yeah. it's a very good thing. Sometimes the things that pop into my head and it all, but it all stems from just a lack of patience on my part. Okay. So if I flip the mirror on you and I say, what's the character trait in yourself that you're most proud of and why, what would that be? I would say my top character traits are persistence and resourcefulness, but, um, what I'm most proud of is how protective I am. Uh, one of my very early writing mentors who read the first draft of my book, she wrote in the margin more than once, you know, watch out, you're coming across like an overprotective mama bear. And my response to her always was, I was an overprotective mama bear. And, you know, I'm just very protective of the people I love. And, and so um, I'm really proud of that. As you should be. That's a lovely quality. All right. So what's the one thing that you would most like our audience to know about either Cancer You or Blue Fairy that might not be common knowledge or that they might not get right off the bat? Well, this might be a little counterintuitive, but when people ask my advice about starting a nonprofit um, um, and occasionally about founding a, a company, I always say, and I know another founder who agrees with me, don't do it. I mean, don't do it unless what you offer doesn't exist or you're finding a gap in a market or you can improve or disrupt an industry. I mean, I only started Blue Fairy, as I mentioned before, because there wasn't a single patient advocacy organization in the U.S. focused on primary liver cancer. You know, I only started Cancer U um, because I, I saw this huge gap missing and we're the only specific cancer specific health tech company that provides this full holistic experience of coaching and community and courses. So I don't know if that answers the question. No, but. It, it's actually a really good answer because um, I like to say that as a business owner myself for 26 plus years, it's not for the faint of heart. No, it's not. It, it is not for the faint of heart. Having employees is difficult. Sometimes making payroll is difficult. I, um, you know, wrangling all the different complexities with compliance and funding and just all, just everything. It is 
it is a, you only can do it if you love it. You have Absolutely. to have a passion for it and yeah. you have to be doing it for something more than the money. Oh God. Hopefully, yes. hopefully the money follows. I mean, that's, that's the goal, but, um, <laughs> but it doesn't always, and it, sometimes it comes in waves. So again, you have to be committed if it's something that, if it's something that you love. Yeah. And there's just all this stuff that, you know, it's not your wheelhouse or you don't enjoy it and you're going to have to deal with it. And if you don't have that underlying purpose and why, mm -hmm. then you'll just walk away. I, I agree. Okay. So I've already exposed so many of your talents. I don't know what you're going to answer this, <laughs> but what is your secret talent or something people would be surprised to learn about you? Okay. So I wanted just to have fun here. So it's, I would say it's less of a talent and it's more of a, a really great party trick that got me a lot of free drinks in my younger days. Um, I can make my tongue into the shape of a flower. And apparently what I like to call tongue gymnastics um, is hereditary. So some people, you know, can flip their tongues completely over. Some people can't. I found out, and I don't remember how, I wish there was a great story here, but I don't remember how, but I figured out, you know, I think in college that I could, do this weird thing with my tongue. And so, yeah, it's got me lots of free drinks and um, it's I, not something I talk about on LinkedIn. <laughs> well, I did, I did go to your page with the fun facts and I'm like, well, that's an interesting one. I don't think I know anybody else that can, you know, make a rose out of their tongue, but yeah, I'm sometimes just challenged making my tongue make full sentences. So I'm like, okay, I'll just, I'll just hold with that. But that's a good one. And I'm pretty sure you're the only person that has given me that answer. So oh, good. I love it. Okay. Last question is if you had the opportunity to meet one person, sit down, have a cup of coffee, a glass of wine, whatever it is in real life and have a conversation with, they can be living or gone. Who would that person be? Eleanor Roosevelt. I just finished watching the first lady series on Showtime and I fell in love with Betty Ford, but I just could not stop thinking about how ahead of her time Eleanor Roosevelt was and not, and not by years, I mean, but by decades. And, and also one of my favorite quotes of all time is attributed to her. And that is no one can make you feel inferior without your consent. I think the world would be a very different and much better place if we all understood that from a very young age, especially women. And I did not grasp that until my early forties. I love that. Now, I have not seen that special, um, but I just recently read a book, uh, and I will make a point of watching it. I just recently read a book. Um, it was called The Diamond Eye, and it was about the female Russian, the Russian female sniper. Um, she was actually really? one of the most prolific snipers in history. Um, she was in her mid-20s. She was like 25, 26. But at the end of her career, she came on a essentially a goodwill mission to the U.S. to try to enlist U.S. aid for the Russian you know, effort during World War II, but she, she became very good friends with Eleanor Roosevelt. And they talked about um, things like, like this girl from this Russian girl couldn't understand that there was segregation. She couldn't understand what, and, and female empowerment. And Eleanor Roosevelt was just an absolute gem to her. I mean, she, one day she like gave her a pair of her pajamas and so, and hemmed them herself for this little Russian girl. Um, <laughs> but anyway, if you, it's called the diamond eye, I would highly recommend it. It's a very interesting book and uh, it does toward the end, give a lot of insight on her tour and her relationship with Eleanor Roosevelt. It's a true story. Oh, so, neat. Okay. It, I want to It's very that. cool. 
So I can't thank you enough for joining me. I hope that everyone got a lot out of this because cancer is such a broad topic and we tried to touch on um, different ways that you can engage, get support, assistance, learn to advocate for, advocate for yourself. If people wanna know more either about your foundation or Cancer University, what would be the best way for them to get that information? Well, Cancer University's website is very easy. It's cancer.university. Um, I think that domain name has increased in value <laughs> 10, 10 times over since I bought it. Um, Blue Fairy is blueferry, F-A-E-R-Y.org. And I'm extremely active on LinkedIn. And, and so also, you know, connect with me on LinkedIn, please. Yes. And if for any reason you're not connected with, um, with Andrea, feel free to reach out to me and I will make that connection for you. But um, this has been an absolute joy to have you, Andrea. Thank you so much. And everybody, please keep this in mind. These are fantastic resources um, you can share with clients, family, friends. Um, be sure and spread the word. So thank you all. And until next week, have a fantastic day.